0: No, no. Never. You should never wash my feet. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. One of you is going to betray me. Who who is it? It's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. What's he talking about? You can't go with me now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. You will disown me three times. Peter, what what are you talking about? And you know the way to where I am going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. So um, if you've been tracking with us, we are on the home stretch on the Upper Room series. And we have been in the book of John Uh, specifically chapters 13 through 17. And it may seem strange to be going back to the upper room post-Easter, but one, these chapters are really long, and two, more importantly, what's in these chapters is too important to ignore. Um, But before we jump in, um, let me pray for us. God, your presence is everything to us. Without it, we are just going through the motions. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you would blow a fresh wind of your spirit on us. That you would crack us wide open and pour a fresh word. And, God, I pray that you would open our minds, um, open our hearts, open our ears to grasp what it is that you're going to say to us this morning. We need a fresh word. I know I need it. And God, I pray that you would hide my flesh behind the cross and it would be you just speaking through me. We love and we bless you. Bless this church and your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, during this series in John's Gospel, John has taken us behind a closed door where we have been privy to Jesus' private conversation with his disciples. Now, to set the context and remind us of where we've been, um, Jesus has wrapped wrapped up his public ministry. He has withdrawn from the crowds. He is not preaching um, sermons or healing the sick anymore. Jesus is hours away from going to the cross, and he is now in the upper room, shepherding the hearts of his little band of disciples. And the weight of this night... The weight of his betrayal and the weight of his impending death is growing on him. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane will fall to the ground in agony, sweat mixed with blood will pour out of his veins, and we will see Jesus cry out to his father asking if this cup could pass from him the separation from his father, the weight of our sins, the judgment of God, the mockery of the crowds, the rejection of his friends and nation. Jesus is feeling the weight of that increasing on him moment by moment. And yet, Jesus in his hour of darkness, instead of being focused on his own pain and anguish, he is taking the time to pastor his disciples through their dark night. I don't know about you, but I think that's amazing. A couple of weeks ago, Craig preached from the second half of John's chapter, in John chapter 15, where Jesus has told his disciples that they, because they follow him, are going to experience pushback, pushback in the form of persecution, that the world will actually hate them because they hate Jesus. The world will hate those who are on mission sharing the good news of the gospel, And notice that Jesus isn't sugarcoating anything. He is telling the disciples straight up that there is a cost to following him. So if you have your Bibles or if you want to open up your Bible app, we are picking up in John 16, starting in verse 1. And Jesus said this. He says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. We could just spend the whole time just talking about that. But in other words, what Jesus is saying is, don't be surprised when persecution comes your way and wonder why this is happening to you. Expect it. Expect it. But don't let it cause you to fall away or walk away from God. And then he says in verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. That was a huge deal back then. In Jesus' day, if you were put out of the synagogue, you were out. You were out of the faith. You were out of the family. You became a social leper. It was a big deal. In fact, Jesus says, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now, now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. To understand the context, um, I want you to look at verse 5 again. He's telling them that he's leaving. And then in verse 6, he tells them that he knows that sorrow has filled their hearts. The the disciples must have looked devastated. Remember, these were real people, imperfect people who struggled and wrestled with the same things that we struggle and wrestle with sin, and doubt, and grief, and anxiety. So let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. Let's look at this through their eyes. They have been with Jesus for like three and a half years. They have put all their hope in Jesus and his future as the Messiah of Israel. And at this time in history, the nation of Israel was looking for a Messiah that would ride in on a white horse and overthrow the Romans, that he was going to usher in this golden age of Judaism. And even though Jesus has taught them something different, there are still these expectations that they put on him. And in these passages, Jesus is telling them things that he's already told them over and over, but it hasn't sunk in. You see, instead of Jesus stepping into glory um, politically, he's actually going to step into glory through the shame of the cross. And instead of being celebrated by the nation, he's going to be handed over by the nation. And these disciples, they have gone all in following Jesus. They have no safety net. These guys have left careers. They've left houses and families. They're all in, man. And instead of this looking like a smart career path for the disciples, Jesus has told them that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to die, and that they are going to be scattered. They're all going to run. And now he's telling them that he's leaving. And the sorrow of that has filled their hearts. You see, the disciples have enjoyed the benefits of being with Jesus for three years. Now, can you imagine if Jesus showed up in the flesh this morning and said, hey, pass me one of those clipboards. I'm going to sign up to lead one of those traveling light groups. You see what I did there? Got, Got that in there. And this traveling light group, and in this traveling light group, I will walk with you and talk with you I will have dinner with you and I will sit around campfires with you where I will drop unbelievable wisdom on you. You will get to see my sense of humor. You will be there when I feed the masses with a couple fish and some loaves of bread and you will see me open blind eyes and deaf ears and heal the sick. And you will see me ruin a perfectly good funeral when I raise the dead to life. The disciples had a behind-the-scenes seat where Jesus would unpack for them what he was doing publicly. They got to experience all of it. But now, now he's telling them that he's leaving and the disciples are heartbroken. Now he's going to say something to them that seems too incredible to be true. He starts in verse seven by saying, truly, truly, I tell you the truth. Now, whenever Jesus starts a sentence with truly, truly, I tell you the truth or very truly, he's about to say something unbelievable. And he says this. He says, but very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Say what now? Let me read that again. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. I don't know about you, church, but if I were one of the disciples, I would be totally freaking out right now. I would be t- pulling a total Simon Peter. I'd be saying, actually, Jesus, it's not better for me if you go away. You're Jesus. Um, I have been following you every day for three years. You've changed my life. You are the most beautiful and amazing human being who's ever lived in the history of the world. No, Jesus, it's not better for me if you go. Jesus drops this bombshell on them and says, listen, I'm telling you the truth. This is going to be hard for you to swallow. And you will not understand this until later, but it's actually better for you if I leave. Why on earth would Jesus say that? And look what he says next. It's gone off a week ago. Thank you. He says, but unless I go away, he says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. And unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now stare at that verse for a minute and let it sink in. Unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You know, in this church, even though we are called Bethlehem Baptist, we probably have in our congregation a huge range and diverse religious or spiritual backgrounds, um, which we would all hail from. Brethren, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, um, Episcopalian charismatic, uncharismatic, you know, Pentecostal, cessationist. I don't know. We probably have, just to name a few, but we probably have some of that represented here. But here's one of the common denominators. And this is how one commentator put it. He said, few of us have ever experienced the weight and the beauty of what the Holy Spirit came to do in such a way that we could read that and say, yep, It's actually better for me to have the Holy Spirit here than Jesus in the flesh. Because what Jesus is saying is that it's actually better to have God the Holy Spirit poured out post his resurrection and ascension into heaven that it's to your advantage to have the Holy Spirit moving in your life and moving in this church than it would be to have Jesus in the flesh preaching right here from this pulpit every single Sunday morning. We may not believe that, and it's hard to wrap your head around. And, some of, and for some of you, the thought of the Holy Spirit might actually totally freak you out. And you might think, and I've heard this ana- analogy used a few times, that the Holy Spirit is like the crazy drunk uncle of the Trinity. I've heard that. Like he's going to come downstairs drunk, wearing a sleeveless shirt, and just saying and burying stuff and telling family secrets. But Jesus has a totally different view of the Spirit than most of us have. Jesus' view of the Holy Spirit is so huge and so robust that he could say that it was for our good that he leave physically so that he can send the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us. You see, the Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We think we know that. But here's what can happen. We can think that the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. You see, and we love our Bibles, and I know I love mine. Um, and the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3. That will make more sense to us in a minute. But I think if we're not careful, we can neglect the Holy Spirit. He can become to us, like the title of that Francis Chan book, The Forgotten. You know, Billy Graham once leveled this indictment against the church. He said, if you removed, now listen to this. He said, if you removed the Holy Spirit from the early church, Acts, and the New Testament, and after that, he said 95% of its activities would cease to exist, would stop. But he said, if you remove the Holy Spirit away from the modern church, today's church, 95% 95% of its activities would continue on as if nothing had happened. They wouldn't even notice. What a sobering and terrifying thought. And every time I read that, I just want to, it makes me want to cry. The Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity without whom we cannot live this Christian life. It's in him we live and move and have our being. You know, this Billy Graham quote has been keeping me awake at night. And in preparing for this sermon, I felt like I needed to unlearn and relearn some things about the Holy Spirit. So I went to Bible Gateway and I typed in the search engine. I typed in the word spirit. And I started to read everywhere the Holy Spirit shows up in the Bible. You see, I need to rediscover afresh who the Holy Spirit is and what he does and how and when and where he shows up and what happens when he does because I need the Holy Spirit and I need him now more than ever. I don't know about you. And so I really prayed about what scriptures to bring to you because it's hard to just get past. I didn't get very far because I was like, oh, this is so good. But we can't be here for hours talking about the Holy Spirit, so I will do my best. The first time God's spirit makes an appearance is at the very beginning, starting in Genesis 1. Now, the language of the Old Testament was Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word for wind was ruach. And it also became known for the word breath. Because your breath is your wind, because there's movement. But the same word for ruach was not only the word for wind and breath, it also became the word for spirit, the spirit inside of you. And the way you checked if someone were dead or alive wasn't by taking your pulse. It was by getting close to you to feel your breath, your wind. If you're alive, you have breath and spirit. No breath, no spirit. You dead. So wind, breath, spirit are all the same word in Hebrew. And the Hebrew loves to play, um, the Bible loves to play with that imagery. And we see it in Genesis 1 when God is creating the world. And it says this. He says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit, capital S, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, the wind of God begins to blow. And that word hovers over the water it's not the word that is used for flapping like a bird. It's the idea of him moving towards that which he has made. It's a loving, tender term. And then you see it in Genesis 2 when it is applied to us as mankind is being formed. And it says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath Of life, and the man became a living creature. You see, this is meant to produce humility in us because we are made from dirt. God makes man from the dust of the ground, and then it says, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God didn't do that with anything else, which means that there is a dignity to us. He breathed into us, and now we have this intimate presence of God animating us. One commentator said, That this passage has the intimacy of a kiss. He is as close to you as your breath. We are dust and the wind of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God. It's an intimate union with him that brings life. That's why Genesis 3 is so devastating. When mankind is presented with the option to walk and step with him in intimacy or to just take the things he gave us and do whatever we want, We chose the latter. We chose the second option. All of humanity has done this. I mean, how many of us consistently wake up in the morning, and some of you do, thinking of God, what a joy it is to walk with you, and what a joy it is to enjoy you in sweet, intimate fellowship. Or do we um, wake up in the morning and hit the ground running, trying to keep up with the frantic busyness of our days that we haven't even acknowledged him at all? The Bible says that when the fall of mankind happened, our foolish hearts went dark. Bad decisions broke something in us. And not just in us, the whole world broke. The wind was gone. And then you get the beauty of the prophets in the Old Testament who were looking ahead to the future day in which a Messiah would come to planet Earth And this Messiah would be perfect and sinless. He would be rejected and abused. And on the cross, he was going to be crushed for our iniquities. He was going to take the wrath of our punishment that we deserved and pay the price for our rebellion, die and be resurrected from the grave. But the Old Testament prophecies never stopped there. They are not just pointing to Jesus' death. The Old Testament prophecies also looked ahead to what would follow that death and resurrection of the Messiah. They envisioned a world permeated by the Spirit of God. And I love this. You see, God speaks to this one prophet called Ezekiel. And he says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He says a day is coming when the spirit of God, the breath of God is going to come back and be in you and move you to what you were meant and created to be. He is going to give you a heart transplant. And then God takes Ezekiel. And he leads him into this field filled with human bones. And this is so awesome. He says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make your flesh grow back, grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you might, you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, and behold a rattling, and the bones came together. Picture it bone to its bone, and I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an increasingly great army. You see, we come alive when we receive God's breath. And that is what Jesus is promising the disciples in this moment of sorrow, the breath of life through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That word helper is such a wonderfully loaded word. In the Greek, it's the word paraclete. It sounds like pair of cleats, just to help you remember, but it's paraclete. Now, some of your translations may say advocate, comforter, encourager, counselor. The Holy Spirit is all of those things. And the reason why there are so many different translations is because there isn't an English word that captures it. In essence, what the paraclete means and what it does is that it means to come alongside, to walk closely with What Jesus is saying is that he is giving you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the breath of life, not only to be in you, but to walk beside you, to encourage you, to comfort you, to counsel you, an advocate who will never leave you, and he will be with you forever. Now, the moment you became a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell in you. Ephesians 1 and 4 says, but the filling of the Holy Spirit is a continual process. Ephesians 5.18 says, and it's a command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit will empower you with the strength, not your own, and empower you and equip you to serve and to love others the way Jesus does. I'm going to invite the band out as I close. So this past Easter, as you experienced Easter, now come on now, wasn't that a tremendous last week, who went to the experience Easter. That was absolutely amazing. We pondered all that Christ has done for us and what he came to bury. And we are so grateful. All our sin and all our shame. But no church that it doesn't end there. Now it's time to shift our focus on what he came to bring, what he died to bring for his people to be filled with the intimate, animating presence and the breath of God. That's the glory and the gift of Easter. The wind is back. And the heights we are meant to ascend to as a man, as a woman, as a human, under God, we can't do in our own strength. The very goal of our existence, which is to know him, to walk intimately with your maker, we can't create or do on our own. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, day by day, step by step. And for some of us, it's a shuffle. And for some of us, it's a crawl. Or like me, it's a full-on limp. But you keep moving. My prayer for you, um, as you walk out these doors this morning, and the frantic craziness and challenges of this world that that awaits for us in our day. When you feel the gentle wind blow across your sweet face, may you know in a fresh and profound way that the spirit of the living God is as close to you as your breath. He loves you. And I pray in that moment that you look up to the sky and say, Spirit, come. Spirit, come. Let me pray. Spirit, come. That's our prayer. Fall fresh on us, God, and forgive us um, for the ways we've ignored you or haven't invited you in. We need you. We depend on you. Fall fresh on us. Blow, Blow a fresh wind through this place. Fill us with Open our souls and our hearts